0: Good evening and welcome back to Editing Aloud. Thanks for joining us. The alcohol ban continues. Still no liquor allowed. And I think the real cost of the ban is really beginning to emerge now. Rob Rose, in the past couple of days, we've had some business luminaries coming out against the ban. as you put it in your column this week, taking... The, the government's arguments to pieces. Um, tell us who's raised their voice and on what grounds.
1: Well, yesterday at Pick and Pay's AGM, uh, which I think we might come back to, Gareth Ackerman um, raised talked about the nonsensical cigarette and alcohol um, bans. I mean, I think the issue is that a lot of the a lot of those CEOs are questioning the link between um, why we've banned this, taken such a drastic step to to really decimate um, our fiscus. In terms of tax revenue, and the marginal gains we'll get from it, a uh, whitey Besan, who owns a wine farm, Plain dust Bosch, also filed a statement um, for for this upcoming court action, in which he says it's, you know, it's, it's unjustifiable to keep doing this. Um, and, and I think the issue is that 300 million is being lost just in alcohol every week, um, and and you know, workers are being laid off all over the place. A couple of the wine farms who filed statements for this court case have talked about how they've laid off more than half their half their staff. So we had a fantastic tourism industry and it's being decimated.
0: Look, you've it's not just the wine industry itself, it's all these supplier industries you've been running this week with stories on what the fallout is. Um, Who have we had announcements from and how bad is it going to be for investment and growth?
2: I mean, really like, I mean, I think that the, the, the people that have come out in the last couple, just in the last couple of days, I mean, we've had at least six and a half billion. If you think about it, Hanekon, sorry, Hanekon, no, no, sorry, ABN yeah, That that's five billion. Console, console, and then, yeah, console glass. And yeah. then one and a half from console, which answers the question about the value chain. They're, they're, they're like a glass manufacturer. Yeah, so that's six and a half, just that we know of. And Hanekon also said they were reviewing their plans or their expansion ambitions in South Africa. In the short term anyway, but so we don't know what the numbers are
0: there Claudie, obviously the argument from government would be that this is about saving lives, that it's overloading the hospitals. Is this a trade-off that's actually working for us,
3: Claudie? If you look at what has been said from your rooms, it is quite clear that South Africa has a drinking problem and that that boozing habit that we do have result in people ending up in ER rooms, and as a result of that, it it is a fact that it does take up rooms, well, beds in hospitals. But um, Health Minister William Kizir spoke today um, in terms of almost the amount of cases that's going down, and I think politically it will become more, it will be very difficult to justify if our cases do continue dropping to continue with an alcohol ban that is so economically devastating.
0: I'm going to try you, Rob Rose. I mean, had it had it not been realized, the extent of the, as it were, the economic multiplier effect of this ban? I mean, do we have ev- any evidence that government seriously researched the costs and the benefits?
1: No, and in fact, that's one of the arguments that the alcohol producers mount is the the fact that the minister and courses under Kamini Zuma in this case uh, hadn't actually done proper research and certainly before the last this current ban the second alcohol ban she hadn't consulted with industry at all so there's not a real sense that they that they consulted with anyone and there's no sense that they consider different options she she, she handed in a recordable evidence she used to make this decision last week um, and and she she specifically said she didn't consider alternative alternatives to this um you know for example like the curfew if you impose the curfew you deal with a lot of the drink driving issues to some extent claudie's right we have a terrible alcohol problem in this country and people are ending up in trauma wards so that's a fact but she didn't disaggregate, for example the curfew impact versus a complete ban so i think to keep the industry alive they're saying you know we need sure have much better control of alcohol but don't don't take down all these productive industries, and certainly South Africa's wine industry is is a massive export earner, um, and and it's a big employer, so we don't want to take everything down if there are alternatives which we can use.
0: On the other hand, Claudie, the, the, the tobacco producers and tobacco retailers' efforts to take the government to court on the tobacco ban have so far failed. How likely is it that the alcohol folk might do better?
3: I think it absolutely depends on the type of arguments that you do make, because after all, uh, a judge can only make a finding on the case in front of them. But look, in terms of uh, if we look, at, if we go back to the cigarette ban specifically, in terms of their success in court, we've only seen Fita, who's lost tremendously in court so far, with regards to their challenge to the cigarette ban. But BATSA is in court this week as well. So let's see if there's any movement with regards to this. It does seem because, of course, like we said, with the massive separation of powers issue, um, these regulations that are issued are specifically to respond to emergencies. So I do think it becomes almost a very difficult um, balancing act for the courts to try and just figure out exactly where do you say this is justifiable and where does this border on the absurd and it doesn't work.
1: Just can I add something to that? I mean, I just think that it's amazing that we've got government leaders trying to manage a pandemic, spending so much time in court preparing affidavits. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, how does stopping smoking, it's not actually stopping people getting cigarettes. 90% of people are still getting them. And yet our ministers who are supposed to be in charge of this and stopping infections are spending hours In consultations with lawyers, it seems ludicrous. And
3: when they are then in consultation with lawyers, um, as we have seen at Andrew Mlangeni's funeral, we have um, like members of the SANDF and our defense forces smoking on TV. (laughs) So clearly, um, we have some problem with law enforcement with regards to the cigarette ban.
2: I think I wanted to add to what Rob was saying, just in terms of the time lost. And then like we've, we sort of lost the, the bigger debate here. I mean, the bigger debate is that we've got a pandemic to deal with, and that's going to be with us for a number of years. We should actually be thinking how are we going? to I know a lot of people are talking about the vaccine. It's going to be a vaccine in february next in October or next year. But you know, as we know from other diseases like HIV, that we don't know that all after all these years, there's no vaccine. So we should really be spending all our efforts thinking how are we going to live with this pandemic or with this with, with, with this virus if we don't have a, sol- a short-term solution. Instead of actually having these arguments, you know, <laughs> because we're wasting a lot of time here. But how do we how do we plan our lives so that so, so that lives can go back to normal in terms of schools? I mean, we forget about the tourism industry. There's been so much talking about alcohol. I mean, that if you think there's been no tourism, no flights since like end of March. <laughs> I mean, I mean you multiply all all those in the economy, and we're not discussing those issues because it's all about these court cases. I mean, I, I think that, I think that is one big sort of opportunity cost maybe that's, that, that's being lost in all of this.
0: But equally, Lukanya, in, in a sense, if we, if we are going to have to learn to live with this, we are really going to have to tackle head on the kind of perennial problem of, of South Africans' alcohol abuse. Um, and banning it is presumably not the way you're going to find a more durable solution. I mean, do you get a sense that there are any attempts to look for more durable solutions? Has the crisis prompted anything? Look well,
2: I, I think, in terms of what the industry has been saying, I mean, there's been a, a, a very openness to actually having discussions and talking. And I think you, I mean, you, you get a lot of advice from other people. Like, in, I mean, they're specialists, like, like in the, or advise governments. I think we had a business day earlier this week. We had Glenda Gray, for example, that's a t- talking about the need to review this ban and look at other alternatives. I mean, obviously, like you and me and Rob here, yeah, we're not we not the experts, and so, but, but but experts are there, and they have been like
1: exploring these issues, and, I and, think you, and you just as journalists, we're quasi experts in all <laughs> <optimal> right?
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, no, no, it's it's definitely a particular competence. Rob, the what are the broader, <laughs> broader implications, though, of 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 these challenges to the rationality of the lockdown and in a way the legitimacy of the lockdown. in mean, the longer this goes on, does does this erode confidence in the process, if you like?
1: Sure. I mean it certainly has you know, the hypocrisy is the thing that that, that stands out to a lot of people. And it's something that's you know, Wadi Basson mentioned in his affidavit is that you have people banning alcohol, but yet you have you know, people not wearing masks, not doing the very basics. We have a taxi industry that said, well, we're just not going to comply with governments. And then government said, well, okay, don't comply. We'll, we'll increase the loading up to 100%. So it shows that, you know, if you challenge uh, rules that seem irrational, government does back down. So that's one of the things that has come out of this. Um, and, and I think that we've made criminals out of average South Africans. You know, there's there's grandmothers who... Talking of the booze she bought on the corner, like which is just you know, people people who are just average human beings have been turned into criminals through irrational processes, and I think it's 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 completely eroded the legitimacy of this, and I think the fact that the government hasn't bothered explaining this particularly well um, has 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 done immense harm to to the presidency and and to the the government.
3: Hillary, can I if I can add something to what Robert said now in terms of eroding confidence? It also doesn't help that. It seems when you see high-level government officials breaking lockdown regulations, like if I can refer back again to the Malangini funeral, how should average South Africans accept that they cannot bury their loved ones with dignity um, and, and stick to the rules? If government officials are just ignoring it, it really goes to the fish rots from the head. And it will, if there's impunity at the top, there will be impunity at the bottom. And that's something that government has to realize.
1: And can I just add one last thing on that? Is you know the big thing of the last week has been the IMF discussions. So we say one thing about how we're going to treat the IMF loan, and I think that there's a there's a lack of there's scepticism over whether we'll do what we say, given how how rarely we do what we say. And these lockdown rules illustrate that. So I think it extends to every every facet of our lives. You know we say we're going to take the IMF money, we're going to use it diligently and carefully. Um, but you know the, the indications from government is that we don't do what we say a lot of the time, and I think there's a widespread scepticism uh, that this lockdown has created, which extends to every facet of our lives, which is far more dangerous.
0: For the finance minister T Timbeweni tweeting uh, last week that um, about Vera the ghost, that Vera the ghost growing up in Limpopo was was the kind of big bogeyman, and in South Africa the IMF had equally become. Vera the Ghost, something I wrote about in my column, uh, raising the question of who created Vera the Ghost. It was, in a way, Finance Minister Mbaweni and his own ANC colleagues who tried to keep us out of the clutches of Washington all those years ago at the birth of democracy. Now, of course, we've ended up there anyway. And, Claudie, the politics now around this IMF loan, um, government itself, is now sort of quite openly fracturing over it. Truly, you wouldn't think actually it was was $4.3 billion, which actually is quite a small fraction of what government needs to borrow. But it's a lot
3: of fuss for really not that much money. Look, I understand that it's not a lot of money, but we must look at the, almost the emotional trauma if you speak about like the left in the ANC must be experiencing right now. Because for so many years there's really been a massive pushback from especially the SSCP, on actually like going towards the IMF and asking them to help us out. Well, help us out in very stringent conditions, especially if we had to go for the standard loans and not the rapid financing vehicle that we're having now. But in terms of the IMF, the big issue from the left and the ANC, and this is why there's such a massive pushback, is it goes to the country giving up, giving up its sovereignty. And not being able to implement what they want to. And I think that's where the big political pushback comes from, because it's been there for years. Lucanya, have we
0: given up our sovereignty? Have we sold yeah, ourselves yeah, yeah. to Washington?
2: I mean, that's, one of, that's, that's one of the most ironic things about this debate, the way it gets left against right. I mean, if you, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you hear the Thabo Mbeki, Trevor Manuel era, when they actually worked so hard to, to get the finances of the country into order, so that we didn't have to go to the IMF. So it was actually you not know, the, the so so. If you're gonna do the left-right wing thing, it's, ironically enough, it was the right wingers who actually like kept South Africa away from the clutches of the IMF, and then the left wingers. I'm assuming that you without know, without people characterize the people who took over after Thabo so they spend then 10 years getting the country's debt out of control, and then to the point where we are now, where we actually are getting money from the IMF. And so it's, so it's iron in a sense that the, the, the fact that the left won in the end is probably the reason why we are going to the IMF, and yet going to the IMF is seen as this big bogey for the left. <laughs> so, that's sort of, so it sort of shows you sometimes how maybe these terms of left-right are not always so useful in analyzing these things.
0: Rob. I suppose one of the aspects of it is that we have committed to a bunch of stuff which we had committed to anyway. But now we've told the IMF in Washington that we are going to rein in the public debt, rein in public sector wages, behave ourselves, try and grow the economy and combat corruption. So we've written all of that down in the letter, which has clearly spooked a lot of people. How likely is any of this to be delivered on, Rob?
1: Well, I think you know Lecagno wrote about this in his column this week he He talked about the fact that the already is that a lot of it was what we kind of agreed to with tito 's twenty nine um, document, so this was kind of already agreed upon, so it shouldn 't spook us it 's just the the phrase of the i m f and the thing is that we committed to that last year and still did the opposite so i don 't think we're going to ha- we 're going to believe that we're suddenly going to do the things that we said we were going to do um last year and still haven't done. I mean, we're still talking crazy things. We're talking about a new airline, for example, yes. at a time when airlines are specifically dead in the water. So I don't think, I don't think anyone need, the left need not fear about us, fearing down a road of um, giving up our sovereignty. Of we'll actually just delivering.
0: Like yes, actually delivering on our <laughs> promises. Actually,
2: I don't know this, Rob, actually. You know, the sovereignty thing surely applies no matter who you borrow from. Even if you're borrowing for the bond markets. I mean, I mean, there's the things that you have to do in order to be able to keep going to the bond markets. Because you can't keep going and going. Like, eventually, like there's no demand for your bonds. And you know, and your yields should shoot up the roof.
1: And so so be- this
2: sovereignty it, it's matter much a non-debate. I, don't, you know, like, you know, I feel like we give it too much credibility in a way.
1: <laughs> I'd be far more worried about borrowing Government's, um, you know, COVID funding from Capitec, you know, and seeing guys coming to the gates asking for the <laughs> <for Kapitik. laughs>
0: to break your arm and leg. But Claudia, how is it that that um, there is this mus- that that this whole COVID effort has enabled as much corruption as we are now seeing with these kind of protests from the ANC, uh, which has itself kind of. Within it, quite blatant corruption. I mean, what is the political dynamic of what's going on now?
3: Hillary, I do think the issue with regards to the ANC and contracts and whatever, of course, during the Cyril Ramaphosa presidency, there's been a massive focus on trying to clean up the state, clean up the ANC, the, the beautiful, lofty message of a new dawn is here. But the reality is that corruption has set in into the ANC's fibre. And the problem with what is happening now during the pandemic is that where beforehand you could get away with saying, oh, well, no, 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 this is corruption from the Jacob Zuma era. Um, Jacob Zuma is not in the picture anymore. You can't use it as an excuse. So the problem is now the president has to face head on the reality that this is corruption and maladministration in which my own spokesperson has been has taken a leave of absence after... There's been allegations of basically tenders for pals which, which have benefited her husband. And how you can't step away from it anymore. This type of corruption and maladministration is now personal. It is not that of what has happened in the previous administration. And I think this is why the ANC is freaking out, to be quite honest.
0: ANC freaking out, Rob Rose. I mean, how, how is it that all of a sudden now the ANC says, you know, we've got to have some controls on family members doing business with the state? Yeah, no, is it kind of a little bit, a little bit late at this point? no? Absolutely.
1: And you, s- you certainly, you do think that to some extent the ANC has reaped what it's what it's sowed. Um, it sowed. You know, 2008 it abolished the Scorpions specifically because it didn't want accountability, and now we have a situation where ANC is so surprised that we have massive corruption in its ranks. You know, it's all along it has sought to avoid responsibility, and now it's happened, and and the party seems so surprised by this. Um, And, and, you know, it it misses the big things. It misses the allegations around its Secretary General, Ace Magashula, and yet David Massondo, the Deputy Finance Minister, has been asked to step down for asking the Hawks to arrest um, somebody he had an affair with, which, you know, is still serious and you can't ignore it, but, you know, is it as serious as the gravity of the issues around Ace Megashula and there's not a sense that he's been asked to do anything? I mean, is it,
0: look, kind on of your degrees of corruption? I, I, I know all corruption is corruption, but in a sense, uh, you know, giving a contract to your girlfriend um, versus corruptly awarding contracts in ways that they ensure that PPE that doctors and nurses needed didn't get there. Um, is that, in a sense, the issue that's really. Um, Sort of disturbing I think, I mean, I the it's nation. All, <laughs> it's not just corruption; it's corruption that's got a real effect on people's lives now.
2: I, mean, I, th- I think exactly, Hillary. I mean, I think when, on this particular issues with PPEs, obviously, like it's, it's much more emo- it's got much more emotional feel for people because, as you say, I mean, we, 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 you know, we, we pick up the papers every day and see about health workers not having enough resources. We've all seen the documentaries about that hospital in Port Elizabeth, for example. Like you know, so if. if 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 you can link then a particular X to that kind of like a outcome, then obviously like there, there's much more of an emotional response to it, and much so it's, hence it becomes much bigger of an issue. But I think like overall, I mean, there's a bigger issue to be dealt with in terms of like, you know, like the use of government resources and and and, and the whole use of like tenders and like how because when I mean, if government is tendering for services and they're using some, what, what, would, what would I call it, some. Uh, Rules or requirements that are, that are non-economic in nature, you know, that require somebody to to pick winners, <laughs> you know, that, that always leads itself to corruption. And and, and, I, and I don't think that's purely necessarily a South African thing as such. But but it's a, but it's a big structural problem. If you I mean, like, I always wonder, like, why do we even need the middle people when you do PPE? Well, if you, if you buy them from Jack Ma, why can't you just buy them from Jack Ma? Why do you need a company from Rob Rose? Inc. to go and, and so can, I think, I and, think this and,
0: probably could and, occupy an entire edition of Editing Aloud. Mm. I mean, the way in which some of the procurement and the BEE regulations in, put those middlemen in the middle and enable some of this abuse. But I want quickly before the end of the show to transition to the private sector, Rob Rose. Um, pick and pay, we mentioned, the annual general meeting was was, was notable for the fact that the shareholders almost voted off the remuneration policy. Um, what is going on there? Is the issue the absolute level of the remuneration of the directors, or is it a lack of transparency about the basis on which they remunerated? And should we, should we be disturbed? What should we be disturbed?
1: I think we've seen a lot of shareholders voting against, and certainly the asset managers have been voting far more regularly against remuneration packages. I think it's about a third of them are being voted against by your pension, pension fund managers. And that's probably a good thing, greater accountability. And I think that one of the things that has really irked them and certainly did a pick and pay is the link between performance and the salaries. The share price of pick and pay has, has gone down, what is it, 20, 30 percent this year. Which is more than a, more than Shoprite, for example, which has lost 10%. Um, and yet the salaries for the executives still keep going up or stay stable. So I think it's a disconnect between what happens to the shareholders and what's happening to the executives. And and part of that is, you know, we have a lot of boards that say, well, you know, if 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 we're in tough times, it's because the market's so tough. But yet if our share price go up goes up, it's because we're so smart. So it's a kind of it's the re, it's the relative arguments in favor of increasing your salaries which always seem to go up um and if things are bad well that's the market there's nothing else we can do about it so it's that disconnect that i think people want executives to share the pain more
0: yeah claudia i mean you're nodding there but i mean in in a year like this is any company that gives its executives bonuses for whatever reason going to be sort of acceptable not you know to shareholders and and in fact to the citizenry is this a year and very quickly, is this a year for bonuses and incentive schemes? Or is this just a year in which you should be cutting your salary as an executive, not adding to it? Claudie?
3: Um, I do think... It <laughs> If we can use the example, for instance, what happened with, um, at NASBash, specifically when Bob van Dyke heard that when the announcement came as to how much money he will make this year, it came shortly before there were mass retrenchments um, announced at media 24. And the immediate reaction was exactly the same where it said, well, how is that possible? It didn't matter. The fact that nasbash is like, he's overseeing a massive, massive company and it's not just media 24. The, the public perception was immediately, but how dare you? And I think that type of reaction is something that businesses should take into consideration. And the states as well, to be quite honest, if I can bring it back to the public sector. yes, um, You can't be demanding things and knowing that I will, it's, it's basically my turn to almost be financially cushioned in, a more, in an even extra way where the rest of the world is losing their jobs, salaries are being cut. it it almost becomes unconscionable to accept that amount of money when people are just suffering. Claudie, it's
0: the how dare you factor. And that is all we have time for. But please do join us again next week. Um, And in the meantime, stay safe, stay home if you can.